If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, and we're pleased to bring you a very special offer. Subscribe to BBC History magazine today, and you can choose a book worth up to £30. Choose from either Queens of the Crusades by Alison Weir, The Children of Ashen Elm by Neil Price, Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre, or The Story of China by Michael Wood. Not only that, you'll also get every issue of BBC History magazine delivered direct to your door, all from just £22.45. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history book. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your book within 28 days of ordering. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In September 1960, Fidel Castro arrived in New York for the opening of the UN General Assembly. Simon Hall tells the story of this momentous visit in his new book, Ten Days in Harlem, Fidel Castro and the Making of the 1960s. And that's the subject of today's conversation. Putting the questions to Simon was our deputy editor, Matt Elton. Your new book's called Ten Days in Harlem and charts an extraordinary 10-day period in 1960. Can you just talk very succinctly, to start with, I suppose, through what happened and why it had such a huge impact? Yeah, so the the book is is set around Fidel Castro's visit to New York in September of 1960. And he's going to New York for the opening of the General Assembly of the United Nations, uh, the 15th General Assembly, which is a kind of huge kind of diplomatic set piece of the um, early post-war period, the mid-20th century. And, you know, everybody is going to the UN General Assembly that year. So uh, Eisenhower is speaking, Harold Macmillan is speaking, Nikita Khrushchev is going, um, uh, Nehru's going, NASA's going. Um, And it's uh, taking place at a huge moment in the, um, uh, in kind of a big moment in world history because, Something like uh, 14 newly independent African nations are also joining the United Nations in this, uh, at the start of this General Assembly. So it's a, it's a kind of a big moment. And Fidel flies in. He spends about 24 hours in a slightly upmarket up midtown hotel um, in Manhattan, has a big row with the owner, storms out, ends up relocating his delegation to the Hotel Teresa in Harlem. And then he, he basically holds court there for the next 10, 10 days meeting uh, a whole array of high-profile guests and kind of doing everything he can to annoy his American hosts and um, kind of um, steal the show, basically. So that's, that's, the, that's the, the core story of the, of the book. Hmm. And as you sketch in the book, this is an extraordinary political period all around the world for many different reasons. Um, what, and this is a ridiculous question, what's the geopolitical situation um, in which this episode unfolds? What are the main tensions? 
Yeah, so I think there are two main things which are kind of coming together in in the autumn of of 1960. That the first big thing is the is the Cold War uh, and the the contest between the Soviet Union and its allies and the United States and its allies for um, the kind of hearts and minds of um, of the rest of the of the world, basically, and the kind of competition between those two. Uh, uh, those two blocks and tensions between Washington and Moscow are um, in a bad place. Uh, they're getting worse in the autumn of, of 1960. There'd been a bit of a thaw the year before. Khrushchev had gone to the United States, had had a um, had kind of toured around everywhere, had visited New York, had had a a very kind of um, cordial meeting with Eisenhower at Camp David. Uh, there'd been real hopes that there might be a kind of um, uh, the beginnings of some kind of detente um, between the the two uh, Cold War powers. And then in the spring of 1960, uh, Gary Powers and his U-2 um, spy plane had been shot down over um, over Russia, and this had sparked uh, a, a massive deterioration in relations. So the Cold War tensions are at, a, at, a, um, a, at something of a high. And then at the same time, you have um, the kind of rapid and sometimes chaotic end of European empire in Africa. Um, uh, and the backdrop for that is essentially a, a crisis in the in the Congo in the the spring and summer of and the early autumn of 1960. Um, at the same time as you have a whole bunch of, of newly independent countries emerging, and and their kind of their allegiance is sort of up for grabs. So you have these two things coming together, I suppose the the Cold War rivalry between America and uh, and the Soviet Union, and a kind of growing. Um, force, if you like, of, of, of newly independent countries, countries from the global south, from particularly from Africa, um, who are sort of up for grabs, I suppose. They're, 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 they haven't fallen into one camp or the other, and there's an attempt by both America and uh, Russia to, to kind of win them over. And so all this is sort of playing out at the United Nations that, that autumn. And just to fill in the kind of final bit of the background, what was the situation for Castro in his political career at the point at which this book opens? Yeah, so he had... Um, he had taken power in Cuba in January of 1959, um, uh, following uh, a, a long kind of um, guerrilla war campaign. Um, uh, he'd arrived back in Cuba in November of, um, I think, end of November 1956, uh, where he'd launched his sort of insurgency against Batista. Um, his forces uh, had eventually uh, triumphed. They'd um, overthrown Batista in January of 1959. Um, and he very quickly set about establishing a genuinely revolutionary government in in Cuba, and um, in part because of the economic policies that Castro was implementing, which involved um, expropriating quite a lot of American-owned businesses or nationalising them. Uh, tensions with the United States had uh, uh, kind of ratcheted up through the early part of 1960. So by the time Fidel um, arrives in New York in, in mid-September. Um, he's, 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 he's really not, not very welcome. He, he, he travelled to the United States in the spring of 1959, just a few months into his, um, after taking power, and he'd been greeted by huge crowds all, all over the place and, and was, um, it'd been a big PR success. But by the time we get to the autumn of 1960, um, he's much less popular and the tensions between his government and, and Washington are, uh, are really getting quite some, um, uh, yeah, things are things are getting quite bad. Hmm. 
I mean, how does one get invited to the UN General Assembly? Is it something that happens automatically? Did he did he push for it? I mean, I don't know the mechanics of, of that. Yeah, no. So, I mean, every member state has the right to speak at the at the General Assembly. And uh, usually it's the um, uh, it's the head of the, uh, the government. Uh, Fidel Castro is the prime minister of, of Cuba. Technically, he's not the head of the government, the president of um, of, uh, of Cuba would have the right to speak, or the head of the delegation, which is usually the foreign minister. So what Castro does is he temporarily appoints himself head of the Cuban delegation to give him the automatic right to speak. And actually the same is true of Nikita Khrushchev, who is neither the, the head of state of the Soviet Union nor the head of the government, uh, 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 although he is the de facto leader. Uh, so he also appoints himself head of the Soviet delegation to give himself the right to speak. And because of the treaty that the United States signed when it agreed to host the United Nations, it's obliged to allow entry uh, to people even if it doesn't want to. And it definitely would much prefer that neither Khrushchev nor Castro were in New York. And um, the, State the State Department makes it very clear that uh, these, these guys are not official guests of the United States, they are, um, they are there for the United Nations General Assembly. To what extent did Castro go into this deliberately setting out to be disruptive or to make his mark? Was it an intention from the very start of this plan? Um, I think it might depend on what we mean by by sort of cause trouble or, or make mischief. I think that um, he was definitely um, always um, planning that he would sort of take the the fight, if you like, to the United States, to the so-called Yankee um, imperialists. But I think his main aim in going to the United Nations and going to New York was to kind of establish his own credentials as a um, as a leader of the sort of global anti-imperialist movement on a par with the likes of Nehru and Nasser and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. So it was really about establishing his own um, kind of credentials on the world stage. I think that was his main motivation. Uh, and of course, if that involved kind of tweaking the Americans' tail and um, provoking them a bit, then that was all kind of well and good. But I don't think he went deliberately to kind of um, create a lot of animosity. I think he went to to establish his own credentials, really, and, 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 and use the United Nations as, as a platform to promote the Cuban revolution and uh, to promote its wider kind of global um, ambitions, I suppose, to help take the fight to the, um, to the imperialists. And as you mentioned, um, he met with a whole range of people during the time he was there. Who, who did he meet with and what kind of form did those meetings take? Yeah, so, I mean, Fidel um, uh, spends, as I said, he spends about a day in this uh, fancy hotel in Midtown, um, the Shelburne Hotel, before having a falling out with its owner, um, Edward Spatz, over uh, an additional security deposit. There are all these wild rumours that fly around the, the Castro a delegation the whole time they're in um, New York. And one of the early ones is that they're uh, plucking and cooking chickens in their hotel room. And um, anyway, Spatz asks for an additional security deposit. Castro storms out in a huff, goes off to the United Nations, threatens to sleep in the Rose Garden, and then ends up in the Hotel Teresa in the heart of, of Harlem. And his very first guest, um, uh, late on the um, the night of the um, the 19th of September, was, was Malcolm X. Um, and there's some great photographs of this meeting that take place in Fidel's hotel suite with Malcolm. And they get on really well. Uh, they kind of a lot of laughing and smiling and uh, some, it's, it's like a really great meeting. And that, and that sort of sets the tone for the rest of the, uh, of the trip. So a whole group of people basically make their own pilgrimage up to Harlem 
to meet with Fidel in, in the Hotel Teresa. So the next day, Nikita Khrushchev goes. Um, Nehru also goes up to the Teresa, uh, and so does NASA. So those are the most ho- high-profile kind of international uh, statesmen that go visit. And then on um, the evening of the 22nd, Thursday the 22nd of September, there's a big kind of gala reception held in the ballroom of the Teresa, which ha- uh, to which there are about something like 250 guests invited. And they, they include, um, you know, uh, the kind of great and good of, of Harlem itself, as well as um, icons of the African-American freedom struggle, like Robert F. Williams, um, leading uh, kind of leftist intellectuals like C. Wright Mills. Um, the beat poet Allen Ginsberg is there. Uh, the British theatre critic uh, Kenneth Tynan is there. Uh, the magnum photographer... Henri Cartier-Bresson is there. So there's a whole kind of range of people from the worlds of politics, um, uh, culture, uh, the arts, who who are kind of um, keen to be seen with Fidel, to kind of have their picture taken with him, get his autograph. It's, it's a kind of a great sort of occasion for, for everybody who's there, really. Mm. And it's as big a cultural moment, it sounds, as it is a political one. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a whole sort of um, style to the um, to, to Fidel's uh, trip, really, which has a, this slightly um, anarchic and kind of beatnik quality to it. So that you know, the Cubans are all you know they they're always in their um, drab olive uh, f- battle fatigues. Um, most of the meetings they have t- seem to take place late at night. So there's all these late night press conferences uh, on the street outside the hotel, or or late night meetings in the in the hotel itself. Um, and really the sort of contrast between that kind of uh, anarchic, rebellious um, kind of aesthetic to the Cubans against the kind of very formal and, and, and um, rather staid kind of approach of the Eisenhower administration is, is a real contrast. And I think it, you see in that kind of clash the, 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 the sort of the difference between the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, it's a kind of a symbolic shift to a kind of a new a new type of politics that's going to become kind of increasingly uh, prominent and increasingly sort of um, prevalent during the 1960s as a, as a kind of an era i suppose and and this was a definite pivotal moment in that in that shift yeah i think so i think it's a key moment it's an iconic moment i think um particularly um particularly that that reception at the at the at the ballroom of the hotel teresa because um you know, at the end of the 1960s, uh, the journalist Tom Wolfe came up with this idea of sort of radical chic, and he, and he sort of poked fun at the at the kind of uh, left liberal literati who were kind of fawning over the Black Panthers and um, and kind of hero- heroising the Viet Cong. Um, and this is a sort of an early sign of that kind of politics. So I think it, it, it does mark a kind of a shift, um, yeah, for, for, for sure. You mentioned the Black Panthers there. How important were these meetings and this trip in highlighting or bringing to the surface, I suppose, racial tensions in the US? Uh, yeah, they were. They, it was a very sort of effective. Um, so it, well, I don't want to say it was a ploy because I don't think it was necessarily pre-planned. But by moving his delegation to the Hotel Teresa, uh, which is in the very heart of, of Harlem, it's on Seventh Avenue and 125th Street. It's just around the corner from. Um, uh, the famous African-American bookstore, the African um, Memorial Bookstore, and Harlem Square, which is kind of a... It's the place where all the kind of the street orators hang out, and um, it's kind of the political heart of of, of, of Harlem. But by moving there, which is an area of, of New York City, which is usually 
kind of kept hidden from the wider world. But uh, uh, Fidel draws international attention to uh, the African-American um, issue, if you like, in the United States, draws attention to the, the problems of, of the urban north in particular. So it's not just that he draws attention to the problems of poverty and racial discrimination in the United States. It's that this is racial discrimination, poverty, police brutality, which is taking place in New York City, America's most famous, most important city, a city which is seen as a kind of a bastion of, of mid-century American uh, liberalism. And, you know, during the Cold War, the late 50s, early 60s, uh, the response of the American government uh, to its race problem internationally, because, you know, the, Moscow and, and the Soviet Union are are all over this, right? Every time there's an incident of racial discrimination, they're, they're using it as propaganda to attack America's leadership of the, of the so-called free world. Um, the, the response in, in, from the State Department is to say, you know, racism is, is largely a, a Southern problem for historic reasons due to slavery, the legacy of slavery, and it's in the process of being... Um, the problem is in the process of being solved through, you know... Uh, court cases and uh, government initiatives um, in keeping with our democratic constitutional form of of government. Uh, but what Fidel's move to Harlem does is is kind of discredit that. It says, look, uh, racial discrimination is alive and well, not just in the South, but in the urban North. It's not just a Southern problem, it's a national problem. Um, and Fidel is hugely popular in Harlem, partly just because he's gone there and has has shown that he's happy to to stay in Harlem, a place where most world leaders would, wouldn't you know, even dare to venture into. But also because shortly after coming to power in Cuba, um, he'd committed his government to um, eradicating racial discrimination uh, and they'd, they'd passed a, a whole flurry of laws um, eliminating segregation on um, private beaches, on um, in social clubs, in restaurants and things like that. And this was a huge kind of contrast with the approach taken in America by the Eisenhower administration, which was much more cautious and um, gradualist and much less bold in its approach. So, you know, Fidel is basically saying we, we're going to get rid of segregation almost overnight. And Eisenhower is saying, you know, yeah, I, I, I agree with the, the premise of racial equality, but you have to be patient. We have to do these things slowly and carefully. Um, so Fidel is, is, is kind of... Um, is almost guaranteed a, a good reception in, in Harlem because of his um, his very strong commitment to racial equality. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And Nasser is always, you know, immaculately dressed. He's he's uh, always impeccably turned out, and he's just sort of horrified by the general shambolic situation in which the meeting takes place. But he's also offended because he presents Fidel with a a wonderful silver tea service as a gift, and um, Fidel can't contain his disappointment at not being given a crocodile. One of the fascinating things about the book, um, for me, is how it reveals politics to, to some extent to be about the interplay between people and about the relationships, the kind of natural relationships that the people have with each other. Um, or were there certain people that Castro connected with or that you think their relationship particularly had an impact politically? Yeah, so I mean, he definitely got on well with with with, Mal with Malcolm, and Malcolm uh, uh, Malcolm X definitely got on well with Fidel. I think Malcolm was later reported to have said that Fidel was the only white person that he ever really liked. Um, so they get on really well, and you can tell from the photographs that they're kind of having a bit of a blast when they when they when they meet. 
The other uh, figure that, that Fidel gets on really well with is, is Khrushchev. Um, their first meeting on the, the 19th of, um, on the 20th of September doesn't last very long, lasts about 30 minutes. Uh, but when they emerge out of the uh, Hotel Teresa onto the, onto the, um, the sidewalk, you know, they're kind of beaming, they're, they're kind of backslapping, they, um, uh, they, they have a very awkward, because of, the, because of their physical differences, Fidel is very tall and very slim and, uh, Khrushchev isn't, uh, their, uh, their sort of embrace on the sidewalk is slightly awkward, but it's, it's kind of heartfelt. Uh, later that day, when Fidel uh, goes to the General Assembly, Khrushchev is keen to jump out of his seat, rush over and kind of greet him effusively again. Even a few days later, when Fidel is invited to dinner at the Soviet mission on Park Avenue and arrives 45 minutes late, Khrushchev is very quick to put him at ease and say it doesn't matter, and he's very keen to kind of josh with him uh, throughout the evening. So the personal chemistry between those two figures is is really good, and um, and I think that's obviously um, really important because ultimately the the relationship between Cuba and the Soviet Union is going to be one of the, those key relationships that helps shape the the, the Cold War through the uh, the next 10, 20, 30 years really. We should talk about the speech itself, which by all accounts sounds remarkable. Um, what did what what would unfolded and what did uh, Castro cover in the speech? Well, he covered almost everything. It lasted for four and a half hours, which is still a record. Um, hopefully, it will never be be broken. Um, uh, at the time, one 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 um, one journalist quipped that he covered everything except the recent dispute between Britain and Iceland over the annual sardine harvest. So it, he really covered everything. It was a long. Uh, tirade against uh, American uh, mistreatment of Cuba over 50, 60 years. So there was a long, that, that was a real, that was a, a long sort of prelude to his, his main remarks. His main, his main target in the speech was imperialism, was colonialism. Um, and I think probably the most important thing that he said in the speech uh, in that four and a half hours was he said something along the lines of, you know, it's really easy to to raise a flag, to have a new coat of arms, to sing a national anthem um, and declare independence. But unless you're able to exercise economic independence, you won't really have true sovereignty. And I think that for Castro, that was a, a key thing about, about what his revolution in Cuba was about. It was about the ability to dictate economic policy uh, for itself rather than have it dictated to by American, the big American sugar corporations, for example, but it was also said with an eye on what was happening in the Congo, where Belgian mining interests were collaborating with the former colonial power to undermine the the new government of Patrice Lumumba. Um, it was a question that was very kind of um, apposite and relevant for his own Latin America more widely, as well as all these newly independent countries across Africa and Asia. So um, it was a speech in which he, he sought to place Cuba and the Cuban Revolution very clearly on the side of the underdog, the oppressed, um, the uh, the people of the of the global south more widely, and, and to really target um, imperialism as the as the main uh, kind of impediment to the to the um, ability of those nations and those peoples to enjoy meaningful freedom. So I've tried to summarise it there quite briefly. Definitely not not in four and a half hours, but um, yeah, it was a very very long speech. Yeah, um, what was the reaction? I think I think in the, obviously to listen to a four and a half hour speech in translation in the an increasingly warm General Assembly Hall was quite difficult. So a lot of people drifted out or even drifted off. Um, I think 
the length of the speech made it very easy for people to dismiss it as a just as sort of a, as a tirade. But what's interesting about it is that um, if you look at some of the confidential uh, reports written by American and British diplomats about the speech uh, in in the days and weeks after it, you know, they, they what they say is basically, yeah, he, he went on for too long, and um, you know, it, it was far, it was far, it was far too, it took far too long for him to speak. Uh, but actually, when uh, a lot of what he said um, did resonate, particularly with his fellow Latin American leaders, and that when people reflected on it, they they did uh, think that he had a that he made a good that he made a, a kind of some some good points. So I think the reaction is twofold. It's in the immediate aftermath, it's kind of dismissed as a as, a, as just a, a long uh, rant. But in private and behind the scenes, I think that the substance of his message is seen as having. Um, having resonated and having uh, been um um uh yeah yeah kind of important i suppose hmm. it sounds like um relationships with america were already a bit fraught before this visit did this speech and this visit make things worse with america yeah it definitely made things worse as you say things were already uh fraught tense um, the relationship was already deteriorating quite quite badly. And I think it was in the spring of 1960, the Eisenhower administration had started it started to draw up secret um, a secret plan to uh, replace the Castro administration. So they were already beginning to think that they, it was it wouldn't be possible to work out a kind of a, a way of uh, working with the Castro um, uh, regime in in in, in Cuba. Um, but this uh, kind of really cements that belief that that, um, that Castro has to go, and so in in the weeks after um, Fidel returns to Cuba, um, the Eisenhower administration kind of uh, steps up its planning uh, for um, what will eventually become the Bay of Pigs um, attempted in invasion in, in the spring of 1961 uh, under the, the new president John John F Kennedy. So. Um, you know the, the the sort of trajectory of relations are already heading you know downwards I suppose um, what, what what this trip does is it really confirms I think on both on both sides that there's there can't be any real um, way of figuring out a kind of a, a modus vivendi a way of kind of of kind of rubbing along together in a, in a way that kind of works mm. and how about with Russia yeah, so again, the sort of trajectory has been set a little bit earlier in the year. Um, uh, uh, Khrushchev's main uh, kind of international trouble, troubleshooter, a guy called uh, Anastas Mikoyan, visited Cuba in February of 1960 and signed a kind of landmark uh, trade deal uh, with the Cubans. Um, so relations between those two countries were already starting to warm up. The fact that uh, Fidel and Khrushchev get on so well in in um, in New York, I think kind of sets the seal on that. One of one of um, uh, Fidel's uh, close advisors, who's in New York with him and attends the, the dinner at the Soviet mission, um, says that um, at the end of that dinner, the kind of the, the, the romance between the, Cu- between the Cubans and the Soviets had, had begun. Um, so it kind of sets the seal on that, um, on that uh, relationship, which is going to just get, get closer and closer over the coming months. Are there any other characters or encounters, I suppose, that we've not talked about that happened during this this period? I mean, there are a couple. Uh, I think um, so. He meets with NASA 
uh, at the Teresa. Um, and that, that's a meeting that, you know, if the meeting with Khrushchev had gone really well, the meeting with Nasser is, is a bit less um, convivial, but partly because uh, Nasser is so appalled by the sort of terrible state of the um, of the suite in which Fidel is, is staying. It's totally, I mean, Fidel is a very messy person and the, the suite is just a, a bit of a pigsty, really. And, 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 and Nasser is always, you know, immaculately dressed. He's, he's uh, always impeccably turned out and he's just sort of horrified by the general sort of shambolic situation in which the meeting takes place. But he's also offended because he, uh, he, he presents Fidel with a, a wonderful silver tea service as a gift and um, Fidel can't contain his disappointment at not being given a crocodile. And uh, uh, Nasser is kind of, he can't really believe it. He's like, Croco- crocodile, there are only four crocodiles in Egypt and they're all in the zoo. Uh, and anyway, in the, in, the, in the days after this meeting, uh, he, he's often much, can be heard muttering to himself about this this sort of crocodile um, uh, incident. Um, another meeting that um, maybe doesn't go quite so well is uh, Fidel... Um, is a huge admirer of Kwame Nkrumah, the, the Prime Minister, uh, or at this point, the, the President of, of Ghana, the former British colony of the Gold Coast. And um, um, the independence of, of Ghana in 1957 is a, is a key moment in, in 20th century history because it's the first surrender of colonial power in sub-Saharan Africa. And it makes Nkrumah a kind of a, a real icon of the anti-colonial movement. And, and Fidel is very keen to meet with Nkrumah and he, he goes to uh, the Ghanaian mission to, to meet with uh, with Nkrumah um, and to kind of pay his respects. I think the meeting is a bit tense because Nkrumah had lived in the United States for about 10 years in the 1930s and he'd spent almost every summer in Harlem. So Harlem was kind of his turf, his patch. And I think Fidel moving to the Hotel Teresa in Harlem had kind of stolen a bit of uh, Kwame Nkrumah's thunder. So I think he was a bit put out by that. So that meeting is 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 perfectly cordial, but there's a, a slight sense, I think, that um, Nkrumah is a bit, um, a, a little bit put out by, uh, by Fidel's own kind of um, uh, taking the spotlight in, in in Harlem. The other meeting which I really like is at, again, it's at that reception on September the twenty second uh, in the Teresa, and it's when um, Allen Ginsberg, uh, the beat poet, um, goes up to Fidel shakes him by the hand and says, when are you going to legalise marijuana? And this is the only point in the entire trip when Fidel is speechless. And it's quite a, it's quite a feat to render Fidel Castro speechless. Uh, and he really doesn't know what to say and, um, and kind of, you know, is a bit sort of startled and dumbfounded by it before eventually recovering his poise and, and saying something like, you know, we're not going to do anything that undermines the important work of building our, our revolution. Um, but I think that would have been a great moment to witness firsthand. I think that would have been a great, uh, yeah, quite a funny moment. To what extent um, does this period represent, uh, I suppose, a microcosm or maybe a catalyst for sort of wider global trends that would then go on to unfold in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that I was attracted to this story and wanted to write about this this kind of 10-day uh, period. But, it's partly because it, it brings in, or it enabled me to, to bring in, to, to draw in and to discuss some kind of big historical questions and, and, and themes and developments. So, you know, the, 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 the growing tensions between the Soviet, uh, between the United States and Cuba, uh, the, the, 
growing friendliness between Cuba and the Soviet Union, the kind of wider shift in the Cold War to the so-called Global South, to Latin America, Africa and Asia, to talk about uh, the ways in which um, decolonization was playing out within that Cold War context, and also to talk about more broadly the kind of the the kind of a sort of emergence of the 60s as a historical era, right? The, the emergence of the, the kind of new left and the, the black freedom struggle and the counterculture. And, and so I think these 10 days are kind of a microcosm of those things. All these things are happening. They're coming together in, in Harlem, in the Hotel Teresa, uh, in the events that surround all this sort of hoopla that surrounds the, uh, the Cuban uh, delegation. Um, but they also serve as a catalyst to kind of accelerate some of those those trends as well. So I think um, that was a key part of why I thought it wasn't wouldn't just be kind of a lot of fun to write about these ten days, but that it was, um, you know, of, of some historical importance and, and consequence as well. Hmm. Is it is it too much to say that these ten days uh, are the source from which the sixties flowed? If that makes any sense? Um, no, I don't think it's necessarily too much to say that. I think there are. I think there they are a foundational moment in the creation of of, of the nineteen sixties. Uh, partly because of the kind of uh, the kind of the uh, aesthetic of the of the trip, the style of the trip, that this kind of anarchic, uh, rip it up um, uh, um, quality that it has, which I think I think uh, is a sort of an auger of of what's of what's going to happen throughout the, the decade. Um, uh, so no, I don't think it's um, it's going too far to say that there are kind of. Uh, um, a key, a key moment in, in kind of creating what we think of as as the sixties, this kind of era of rebelliousness and uh, uh, radical politics and um, anti imperialism and kind of cultural experimentation. I think that they're, um, yeah, I think they're they're kind of a foundational moment in the creation of that whole um, notion of the sixties. Mm. And this sounds kind of ridiculous, given that the Cold War was going on. But I think what it really brought home to me is how globally interconnected things were uh, in a truly global way that perhaps I tend to think of the Cold War in terms of just two two nations competing, if you like. Yeah, no, I think that, that's true. And I think that the, um, I mean, the key thing, one of the key things about the Cold War is that it increasingly ends up being fought partly by proxy in all these other parts of, of, the, of the world, um, in parts of the world which have... Uh, recently undergone or or are in the process of undergoing um, uh, decolonization, and in one of the interesting things about the autumn of nineteen sixty is that there is at that particular point in global history, I think a real a real hope, um, a real belief that uh, these newly independent nations uh, can form a kind of a a really key uh, block, a sort of a third block, if you like, that can challenge the uh, Cold War rivalry between Moscow and, and Washington and can, and can maybe, maybe um, operate together to, to kind of intervene to try to uh, either recalibrate that Cold War tension or to, redu- or to reduce it. We're obviously 60 years on now. To what extent does this period still shape the world of today, do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. That's a hard question to... Um, it's a hard question to answer because a lot of the things... I talk about in the book, well, some of the things I talk about in the book no longer seem so important. So the, the United Nations and its General Assembly, I mean, every year when the, the General Assembly opens, it makes it onto the news. 
usually be, I mean, I think last year Donald Trump's speech made it onto the news because it's Donald Trump, right? So whatever he says gets onto the news. But I think the idea that the UN General Assembly matters seems quite foreign to us now because the UN itself is uh, seen as much less effective and is sort of struggling to find a meaningful uh, role. I think also the, you know, you look back at 1960, I mean, you've got all these um, kind of political giants who were there, you know, Eisenhower, Nehru, Nasser, Fidel, Khrushchev. I think we're, you know, hard-pressed to find people of that calibre at the moment. So again, it, 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 it seems like quite a, quite a contrast. On the other hand, um, you know, all the stuff that Fidel uh, is exposing in, in Harlem and his meeting with Malcolm X is drawing attention to around disc- racial discrimination, poverty, and particularly police brutality are things which are highly resonant uh, in our current historical moment. I think where the difference is, is that um, in 1960, there is some some optimism that um, the United Nations might be the way of of solving problems and working together. And right now, I think all of these multilateral institutions are are, are struggling um, in the in the face of of kind of a resurgent um, populism and nationalism and a sense of it sort of every country for itself, really. That was Simon Hall. His book, Ten Days in Harlem, Fidel Castro and the Making of the 1960s, is on sale now, published by Faber and Faber. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.